We're about two weeks away from the 2022 Beijing Olympics in China. Relations between Canada and China are at the worst they've ever been. China not happy when the House of Commons declared genocide of the Uyghur minority in China. Then there was the hostage diplomacy of holding the two Michaels in prison on trumped-up charges for almost three years in retaliation for the House arrest of Huawei exec Meng Wanzhou. Now, there have been threats and intimidation of Canadians on this soil for speaking up against the Chinese Communist Party. And considering the shoddy treatment, should Canada be sending athletes to these games? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. The list of complaints is long. Crackdown in Hong Kong, intimidation of Taiwan, persecution of Tibetans and Uyghurs. In the face of all this, Canada is sending athletes, although it is standing with allies, on a diplomatic boycott. China calls that move a farce. And Canadians are paying attention. Recent polls show Canadians do support a full boycott of the games. The eyes of the world will be watching to see if any comments or protests result in any reciprocal action. It's a complicated situation. And we have a number of guests to join us on the show today. Elliot Tepper is Professor of Political Science at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Alan Freeman is with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Margaret McKeg Johnson is a Senior Fellow with the Graduate School for Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Bruce Kidd is a former Canadian Olympian and a Professor of Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Kemi Lamo is a Tibetan-Canadian activist, and Zumrate Arkin is with the World Uyghur Congress, and they all join us today on Unpublished TV. And, and Bruce, we're talking about sending athletes to Beijing, and you being the only athlete, I guess, one who went to the Olympics. Uh, are, are they being used as political pawns, or do you feel they are being used as political pawns here? I don't think so. I think that the athletes, uh, with their eyes fully open, after two or three years of of active debate among uh, national level athletes are are uh, are eager to compete in uh, in Beijing for the Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games. I do not believe that any of them uh, see uh, their participation as an endorsement of the genocide uh, in uh, in in Western China or. Uh, the long-standing occupation of Tibet, the uh, the crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, and so on. But uh, the the Olympic Games uh, were uh, put in in Beijing, and uh, they want to compete in that. And although, uh, as we'll discuss on this call, uh, it's a very difficult terrain. Uh, they separate out their participation from uh, support or endorsement of the Chinese government. Uh, Elliot, Canada is engaging in a diplomatic boycott uh, with about seven or eight other countries. Does Canada in particular, or in particular, Jinping really care if there's a diplomatic boycott? I believe he cares a great deal if there's a diplomatic boycott, if it involved uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, whether he cares about Canada coming or going, I suspect uh, not so much. The fact that uh, we have today all the major news is about Russia. And I think we should probably pay attention to the geopolitical implications of Beijing at this time hosting an Olympics in the middle of you know, an Omicron crisis. We know that Omicron is now in every major city in China, it's in the ports. It has now reached Beijing. So there's a real question, I think, of human security here. But beyond that, there's a geopolitical implication to China 
absolutely determined to go ahead in the middle of this pandemic to prove that it is a geopolitical power. And I think keeping an eye on Russia and China and how they behave in the world and the fact that the Olympics are being wrapped up into that geopolitics is well worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Alan, you supported a, a full boycott. Is diplomatic the best candidate can do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I supported a boycott back in October of 2020, even at a time when the uh, <clears throat> two Michaels were being held. Um, I really haven't come back from that, uh, backed off that 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 view. I, I don't see. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'm actually feeling that China is actually perhaps going full full ahead into a disaster for themselves, right? That we could end up being two weeks time from now, this Olympic Games could be stuck in the middle of an Omicron wave in China, that the that they may not be able to actually continue to hold the games. Already, um, tourists aren't going, diplomats aren't going, American journalists aren't going for safety or whatever. So the whole thing, and you know, the, the other thing about this, and I'd like to speak to Bruce about this a bit, is that sure. these are not, we talk about these Olympics as Olympics. They're winter Olympics. Nobody in India is watching what's going on there. Nobody in, in Africa really cares, right? So it's northern, you know, you know, places where there's snow. <laughs> mm. And so it's a smaller Olympics, which makes Canada very important. We were number three in terms of um, in terms of medals in Korea. So if we actually pulled out, it would be there would be an impact. So there's this funny situation where in some ways, this is not as big a deal as the Summer Olympics. And second of all, I think that the, the, the by trying to already, I, I'm not sure what China is winning from this, from these holding these games. Sure, they can pull it off, I guess, but certainly, but it, it, it but in the eyes of the world and in eyes of the people who are watching in northern you know, in northern climates or interested in winter games, I don't think China looks strong. I just think it looks authoritarian. So I'm not sure mm. what they're getting out of it. Okay. Uh, Margaret, you've worked on the Canada-China file for, for years. Has this relationship ever been worse? No, it's never been worse. And we're not going to be forgetting about what happened to the Michaels. I think it will be a long time before things get even uh, a little more positive. We'll continue to do business with China, but uh, the love of China, I think, has been lost for a lot of us. I was a friend of China for 40 years. I'll never go back. Um, I will not meet with Chinese government officials. Um, I've changed my mind. And it's not just taking the Michaels. It's um, it's the you know the the militarization of the South China Sea. It's what happened with Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, potentially, and uh, some of the uh, aggressiveness that have has taken place towards its neighbors. And you know, uh, more recently, we've seen the the disappearance of Peng Peng Shui uh, for making an accusation of rape against a Politburo member. And you know, that's we still don't know where she is. And the IOC has been, been really complicit 
in um, allowing the Chinese government to detain her because they haven't insisted on her being allowed to travel and speak freely. And so, uh, you know, I think they have a lot to answer for on that front as well. Uh, now, Jimmy, I wanted to talk to you about uh, intimidation coming from from afar. And, you know, China obviously has its its government supporters. And you've dealt with that firsthand in Canada. What was what was that like? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm also an alum of U of T, so it's nice to see you here, Bruce. Um, I think it was just right before you retired, I became uh, vice president of equity. And then followed by that, when I ran for presidency of the student union at U of T Scarborough, um, I got thousands and thousands of threats, uh, death threats, rape threats. Um, and, you know, being an activist, I was aware that, you know, oftentimes our organizations are subjected to these type of uh, trolls and, you know, bots. Uh, however, this was the first time I was seeing uh, an experience where they were directly um, at me. And um, I remember posting a, an Instagram story saying, you know, is this hate from China? And uh, someone actually personally DM'd me and said, no, B-I-T-C-H, I'm here. Uh, and then that followed with tons of death threats and rape threats, which basically posed uh, not only a threat against me, but my family members, because there were comments like, your mom is dead. And that was something that I saw so often that I had to even call my parents time to time to check in on them without scaring them uh, and, you know, um, yeah, and without letting it affect the, them and their mental health. And I, so I'm one, the extent, yeah. I, I'm wondering when you get threats like that, what, do you report them to the police or do, or do you just deal with it? So it's been about uh, three years and counting. I've spoken to various parliamentarians. I've spoken to the campus security at campus, uh, starting from there, going all the way up to CSIS, uh, our RCMP representatives, multiple uh, inter interrogations or uh, questions, um, and, but nothing so far uh, that has made me feel more comfortable at home. Um, I don't have any more any contact with my family members whatsoever. Um, not only that, none of my extended family members are able to contact uh, any members that they know inside of Tibet uh, without posing a risk on their uh, safety. And uh, till this day, I've worked with various coalitions submitting uh, reports to Global Affairs, have closed door meetings with um, uh, representatives from Global Affairs, however, no response yet. And even the low hanging fruits is what I called as recommendations in the report was like having one point person where people like us would have an opportunity to go and they would understand the amount of times I've had to deal with security officials that did not understand the geopolitical situation and the seriousness of this issue uh, was quite disheartening as a Tibetan Canadian because, you know, for me, I was born as a stateless refugee in India and my parents came here to finally find a home that, you know, gave them citizenship. citizenship. And we're, although we're grateful, you know, uh, I was not being treated like one because till this day I have to tell people, isn't this a, a criminal offense to get a death threat, not only by like from by one person, but I've got I've received tons. And this is proof that Toronto police directly gave to me. They translated messages that said this person has written a, a poem about how he's going to rape me. And not only did he do that in Mandarin, he translated it and sent it to me in English. 
And to this day, I do not have a single um, case against anyone, nor do I know where these threats came from. Some were actually students, which uh, some of my friends did research. Uh, uh, you know, our school newspaper folks, the journalists, they went and actually did their own research. And they were like, these students are actually here because they have their tea cards in some of their stories or and on some of their social medias. And that's how we knew that this, this is actually uh, serious. And there are students on our campus that are continuing to following me, uh, you know, surveil. Uh, they watch who I talk to. They were taking pictures while I was in our student union office throughout my presidency. And so that is just a taste of what it feels like to be subjected to harassment and intimidation here in a free and open society in Canada. Zumratai, Canada has called the, the treatment of, uh, of Uyghurs genocide. And they did that in the House of Commons. Is that just lip service or does it create any action for the Uyghurs themselves? Um, I think that's a good question. I think Canada has waited a long time to do even to call this, you know, what it is, a genocide, and to even act on this issue in a meaningful way. Although there was uh, pressure coming from different um, from different groups, including parliamentarians. As you know, there is a Uyghur, um, Uyghur friendship group in the parliament that is focusing on this issue. And this, this is how this issue was brought up in, in the parliament in the first place. Um, I don't, I think Canada did, um, you know, um, act on on surface level, um, they did introduce uh, several uh, regulations in terms of forced labor products coming in from East Turkestan, uh, so-called Xinjiang region. And um, this was, of course, a good step, a first step, but it's not enough because uh, the, the implementation was not very clear. Um, of course, they did this, they did this um, in coordination with the UK government and the US government, but uh, and also they did introduce some sanctions um, against uh, four Chinese officials who are responsible for the for these crimes and also one entity. But um, I think that Canada is still running a lot behind. Um, if we, of course, we don't like to compare ourselves with the United States, but the United States has done actually a lot in terms of uh, of this, you know, genocide and and meaningful action. They were the first country to recognize it and call it a genocide. They were the first. Um, government as well to uh, adopt, uh, you know, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which really focuses on this issue. And they, uh, just before Christmas, they also uh, passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. So I don't know what Canada is waiting for. We need uh, more actions, more concrete actions, like Chemi uh, Lamo said, there's so much Canada can do. First of all, it can start with harassment. And we're, you know, our communities are always subjected to these harassments coming from directly from the Chinese government. My own father, who was, who's a Canadian citizen who visited um, the country in 2013, was um, taken by the Chinese security uh national police and interrogated a couple of times and only was released at the, except, you know, when he accepted to spy for the Chinese government, otherwise he he wouldn't be released. They and he, of course, said, I'm a Canadian citizen. I don't owe you anything. They just threw his passport across the room and said, here, you're not a Canadian citizen. You're on under our watch, under our control. So you're under Chinese law. And when he came back, actually, uh, we, of course, reported this to, to the police, global affairs, everyone, and no single action was taken against this. Uh, you know, these officials called him a um, couple weeks after he got back to Canada, and we heard 
the, the officials asked him deliberately and openly uh, if he had anything to report back to them and you know in terms of actions within the community in, in Montreal but also in Canada and if he was connected to um, you know different organizations or uh, leaders in, inside the movement and when we approach uh, you know people parliamentarians uh, government officials global affairs no one did anything um, the only people who were able to help were journalists that we approached and pitched the story to and they reported on this and it's just unbelievable to to think that you know there's not even one specific task force or unit in the government to address these specific issues because this is, doesn't only happen to Tibetans or Uyghurs this happens to anyone living under Chinese oppression whether it's Hong Kongers Taiwanese or anyone even Chinese dissidents in Canada. So I think it's really important that Canada does more. And one thing, because we did mention um, the two Michaels previously, I also want to remind uh, folks here that there's also one Uyghur Canadian that's been detained since 2006. That's been two to 16 years now. Hussein Jalil, who was a Canadian you know, citizen, he's been detained by the Chinese government um, and he's been missing ever since and we don't talk about him ever. And his wife and kids are still in Canada. They're still fighting for his release. We did so much on the two Michaels. Why can't we do the same for this man who is also a Canadian citizen? Margaret, when you hear stories uh, like, uh, like those, obviously it, conter- it concerns you, but where does the government come in? To, you know, is that part of maybe uh, there's a gap, a loophole, there's something here where it doesn't seem the, the federal government is paying a lot of attention to some of the intimidation that's going on? Yeah, I think that it's a really good point that there should be a nexus where people can go, uh, one-stop shopping for harassment by Chinese uh, agents in Canada. And uh, and there isn't, and people are just to- told to call the police, and and the police don't do anything. So it's a very serious issue, um, and it's it's something that should be addressed. There should also be a registry of foreign agents uh, in Canada uh, acting on behalf of the Chinese government. Uh, such uh, registries exist in other countries, and we should have have one as well. Um, But in the shorter term, I'm hoping that the Olympics can be used to raise awareness of exactly what's going on in uh, the Uyghur region of uh, China, Uh, certainly uh, with the children particularly, where they've been taken away from their parents and put into this residential school system, basically, um, where they are being indoctrinated in Xi Jinping thought, and they're, they're not allowed to speak their own language or uh, practice their religion, even am, among one another. Uh, and they're punished if they do. And this is, we've seen this story before. And, uh, you know, it's the Canadian government needs to be raising this at the most senior levels in China. And uh, I'm hoping that the opening ceremonies of the Olympics might see uh, fewer Canadian athletes than would normally be seen uh, marching behind the flag. Um, because I think if the if uh, athletes sit out the opening and closing ceremonies, that itself is a measure of our um, views on how China is conducting itself with its own citizens. And apart from that, we can... Uh, choose not to watch the Olympics. That's I'm not going to be watching. 
um, and uh, and even inform the sponsors uh, of the Olympics, uh, which are all on the website of the IOC, uh, inform them that we're not going to be watching and why. It's important that these messages be given uh, to the IOC, the COC, and the Canadian government. Margaret. Oh, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, Margaret, why, why do you think in the end that G has insisted on carrying out these Olympics? It's a really risky move. I mean, the Japanese put it off for a year. Um, I'm not sure, you know, as I was saying, I'm not sure this is actually going to be a huge success for them in the end. Well, you know, I, I think it will be a success by the measure of what China is looking for in this event, and that is its own domestic market. Oh, okay. Its own domestic audience of uh, people who are proud that China is the first um, to host uh, two Olympics. Mm. Uh, they, the, Beijing is the first to have both summer and winter Olympics. And uh, there's going to be a big extravaganza uh, displaying uh, Chinese culture and uh, in the opening and closing ceremonies. Um, oh, it's, so it's quite different than 2008, where China was really wanting to show its stuff to the world, trying to show how it was you know, advancing and how it was an attractive place. It doesn't seem to be interested what the world thinks of it anymore. No, they're really not. They, they are they are taking whatever actions they want, which includes bullying other countries. Um, and but she is in a is in a sensitive spot at this time because there will be later in this year the big party congress where he may be um, confirmed for another five year term, and uh, that's what really what he's looking for. And so he doesn't want a single vote against him. And he's consolidating his power by putting in prison um, many um, senior party people, uh, uh, blaming them for corruption when really their, their um, fault is, is perhaps talking behind the scenes against his policies. Uh, you know, Elliot, I, I was going to say there's been a lot, an awful lot of action in words of, of Jinping, and they seem to be building up his profile ahead of that National Party Congress coming up later this year. What do you what do you expect is going to be the result of that? The Party Congress, uh, I quite concur, and you and I have discussed this in the past. Uh, we're talking today about the Olympics and certainly the le legitimacy of the party and Xi Jinping uh, are partially on the line here the prestige and the domestic audience, but the big ticket item for him is indeed the 20th Party Congress, which is coming up the end of next year sometime. And he wants to be sure that uh, he is confirmed for basically leader for life uh, because they've already changed the constitution to permit that. The success therefore of these Olympics are one factor leading up to it, but uh, the big ticket item there is that. The, um, the fact that he might possibly face some opposition or some constraints on him if he is confirmed. This is the last gasp, the last chance of the many, many uh, enemies or opponents that he's he has within the party and outside the party to do anything whatsoever to check this uh, uh, red emperor, as he's being called. So the party Congress is coming up. He almost certainly will make it, but there's a chance. It's the last gasp in a sense for the kind of vision of China under a collective leadership uh, 
wisely moving the, the country into the future. And the Olympics factor into this just in, a, in, in one way, but it's a minor way compared to the big ticket item for him. Bruce, China held the uh, Summer Games in 2008, and here we are 14 years later. What, in your eyes, is different then, other than, other than the actual pandemic? Obviously, that would be a big play of it. But what's different about China uh, between the 14 years? Well, first of all, I would say that uh, the, in my, from, from my conversations within China and my research, I would say that the number one target audience for 2008 was the domestic audience within China. And uh, in all of my conversations with uh, sports people and citizens in the cities that I visited, uh, they didn't care at all about the foreign. Uh, they, they expressed pride over the ability of the emerging Chinese nation to hold this Olympic games. Uh, when I expressed concern about the tremendous costs that uh, the games incurred, they say, Chinese people aren't concerned about the cost. Uh, we're proud of the great success of those games. And I think moving into this other area, uh, many of those same narratives will continue. Uh, it is the winter games, uh, but China is a winter country, at least uh, the Northern parts of the country. There's a huge ambition to uh, create the infrastructure, the facilities, um, and uh, the habits and the skills of, of winter sport as winter recreation. And that is uh, a highly publicized ambition in conjunction with these games. Um, so um, I think it's, it's, from the sports community point of view, it's, it's continuity. Uh, to be sure, uh, we have seen uh, the um, the despotic side of China even more horribly uh, over the last uh, 14 years uh, and, uh, and and I think that that in all of the communities we've identified activists have been very astute uh, and successful in in drawing the world's attention to those to those atrocities uh, in, including, uh, what Chimmy talked about, the, the horrible persecution of her as an outstanding student leader at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Uh, those, those are horrifying. And I think the world is much more aware of that. I'm not sure it's making any dent upon public opinion within China, though. And I think that's the target of, of these games. Uh, Jimmy, uh, we, we talk about uh, the intimidation that you received, but that didn't seem to, to keep you from going to Greece to make your voice heard. Uh, take us through that, that decision. Uh, definitely, because that is exactly what the Chinese government is trying to do, is to silence our voices. They've done that within our own homelands. They have displaced us as people, and they want to continue their, you know, their harassment and intimidation through their long-arm tactics uh, with their partnerships and influence in free and open society like ours, uh, specifically the influence that they have in academic institutions. But that is a topic for another time. However, this time around with the Olympics, you know, uh, as folks earlier have already mentioned, uh, the aim of this is legitimacy, be it internal or external. Both ways, 
the CCP is dying for legitimacy. Um, externally, I think this time around, they're actually trying to send a message to the world that they don't care about what the world thinks. And so it's trying to dominate their, um, uh, is to assert their dominance. Uh, because within China, uh, the Politburo, you see the way they shuffle their leaders. Uh, Chen uh, Guangzhou, who was initially party secretary of Tibet, was then replaced uh, or moved to East Turkestan to do what he has been doing. Uh, all of the uh, slave labor, the genocide has been crafted under him. And just recently, actually, uh, Wang Zhuzeng, who was initially, uh, who is now um, initially at East Turkestan, has been promoted. And he's actually one of the most sanctioned uh, people in the world. And he has been promoted to Tibet. Uh, and, you know, all human rights researchers, including Human Rights Watch, has been talking about how there is a severe danger to what Wang Zhuzang and uh, Xi Jinping will do inside of Tibet now, given that they have uh, promoted them. Um, so that's that. And then in terms of uh, our athletes going there, uh, you know, they're just being used as a tool. It's a facade of legitimacy. And it's actually a very common tool that auto, uh, autocratics or authoritarian regimes use. Uh, you know, they stage grand carnivals to create that facade of legitimacy. They want there. There's a crackdown of Chinese dissidents inside of China. Like, I can't believe that we're sending athletes whose identities will not be accepted in China. Uh, being a female, being uh, a feminist, being an activist, being a parent. Uh, imagine being a parent and having your child who's young as four years old being stripped away from you and being sent to colonial boarding schools to be taught another language so that you can be uh, your identity can be erased and that's exactly what's happening about almost a million 80 percent of tibetan children as young as four years old have been forced or coerced into colonial boarding schools and that's a report that just came out month you know, just weeks ago um and the situation inside of tibet east Turkestan, hong kong have only worsened and in 2008 during summer olympics um you know, it's good to hear that, Bruce, you had so many great interactions with locals. I wish you had an opportunity to talk to Tibetans. The, the wave of protest that happened in March 2008 till this day, just earlier, I was talking about how mothers, retired doctors are actually still in prison for rising up on, in 2008 so that the international world will wake up. During that time, it was the Tibetans. And at that time, Hong Kongers were probably cheering on for the Chinese Olympic team. This time around, they're with us in our coalition. They're standing beside us and we are calling and we're reaching out to athletes, having conversations with them and encouraging them not to go, but also having a conversation with them to let them know about what this what Olympics mean to us. You know, is it important uh, that they uh, attend and, uh, you know, make bear the fruitions of their hard work of their whole life? Yeah, 100 mm. percent. But athletes should have never been put in a position where they had to pick between a genocide of a backdrop of genocide games uh, and something that they've worked towards all of their lives. This calls for more representation of athletes into the committees, uh, not just the government and other folks. You know, uh, where do athletes uh, where, where do the athletes come in in this conversation? They shouldn't be put all of this pressure. It, the pressure and the blame should go back to the IOC. And I think it's important to go there. All right. Now, Zumer Tai, Canada says it stands with the Uyghur Muslims. And we we had the, the declaration of the House of Commons, but nothing has really changed. Uh, and you mentioned Canada can do more. What can you point to a few countries that might be doing more to help the uh, the Uyghur Muslims in China? 
Um, I think I've, I've kind of responded to this earlier where the United States is doing more for sure. And some European countries are doing more as well, including uh, the UK, uh, which, you know, this topic is discussed in Parliament every single week. Um, and also countries like uh, Germany, who are also, you know, taking the Uyghur forced labor issue seriously in France. There have been a couple of um, uh, actions taken on forced labor as well. So I think, um, first of all, Canada should start by, you know, a, a firmer approach on, on China. And I think uh, now with the two Michaels home, um, they can allow, uh, you know, they can they can be more firm. Um, one one response that we would always get uh, when meeting with Canadian officials was, well, with the two Michaels in China, we're kind of limited in what we can do. But now they don't have that anymore. Um, of course, we have Hussein Jalil and they should be pushing for that. First of all, mm. um, they should be, uh, you know, doing everything they can to reunite the, the, the family. Um, and also creation of, you know, some sort of task uh, unit to address harassments, um, especially, you know, with our communities where we're, we are constantly harassed. And um, forced labor issues should be also one uh, one target. One thing that I also wanted to mention is, um, uh, Chimmy, you, you, you brought up Greece. And actually, I was also in Greece with Chimmy Lamo. Um, I was not, I was the only one who was not arrested during that <laughs> time because uh, <laughs> I was there for, a press conference if i was arrested then like, no one would be speaking at the press conference so um but during that press conference while Timmy was in prison or in detention i was uh giving that press conference in athens the day they were having um the the torch uh relay in in, in the acropolis we had a early press conference with all the journalists and after right after two chinese agents were following us. They were looking for us, specifically me and my other Tibetan colleague, Pamadoma. And we had to basically isolate ourselves in, in our press conference venue because these agents were specifically looking for us. And they were actually in the lobby area where they were waiting for us. And two of our Tibetan friends got arrested and taken to, uh, to interrogation at a police station. Uh, for doing absolutely nothing. And we were asked by the hotel management to leave the hotel, despite our, you know, anxiety. And, and you know, we were stressed in that time because we knew that people were following us, even uh, Greek nationals were following us. And um, the, the question of um, the, the issue of, you know, Ch Beijing not caring about this uh, just ra uh, was raised a, a little bit before. But I think Beijing cares a lot about what's happening. Otherwise, they wouldn't go to you know, <laughs> to these lengths to harass activists in a democratic and free society. And it's not like we were Chinese nationals. We are Canadian, Swiss, American citizens who got harassed and intimidated openly by the Chinese government. Um, so if they did not care, they wouldn't care about, you know, activists like us. We, I mean, we, who are we? You know, we're, we're small compared to the giant Chinese government. Um, so I, I do disagree uh, with the fact that Chinese uh, government doesn't care because otherwise they wouldn't harass us, harass our family members, harass dissidents, um, tr you know, try to silence them. So uh, I think they, they care a lot. And the one thing that um, Chemi also mentioned is that now, you know, with the world's participation to these games, even though they're just Winter Olympics, 
it tells a lot because uh, China is using this opportunity to bolster their regime. And also um, it sends a clear message that with our participation, with athletes' participation, sponsors, broadcasters, everyone, it sends a message that, you know, to Beijing saying, Beijing will think, oh, look, I can do anything I want, even with the genocide I'm committing. Um, and the world still is interested in participating to my games. That means that there's no accountability. There's no you know, punishment. There's no consequences for my crimes, for my actions. So that's why I think we should all boycott. And and for if not for, you know, the suffering that our communities have to go through. I have over 40 members of my family that are interned or disappeared. And so in in the face of that, I asked my government to just, you know, boycott. And of course they did boycott diplomatically, but there should be more. All right. Now, Alan, uh, a lot of the Olympics obviously is about bolstering the, the impression of China, the impression of Jinping. He recently addressed the International Monetary Fund calling for a hold on interest rates by, by the West. And we've been hearing how great the China economy has been humming. But, you know, considering the real, recent real estate crisis there, is China really doing that well? Well, the, the other issue, you know, I'm, I'm not an economic expert at all on China. The other thing that I think that we see is happening in, behind some of these supply chain issues is that, you know, this basic idea of zero COVID and basically locking down cities um, to stop, you know, just a handful of cases. And this seems like, this, you know, Omicron is so um, infectious, it, it's going to no, despite what they do, it's going to hit increasingly other parts of other cities. And China is already, I think, suffering from uh, production problems, uh, output problems. I can't believe that Omicron will not have a big impact on the Chinese economy. Um, and so I think that there, that's another big issue for, for Xi is not just the Chinese Congress, but maybe the Communist Party Congress, but also the economy. And, you know, he, he wants the economy to remain strong. Can you do this through a zero infection policy? I don't know. I mean, it's, mm. you know, the, the, we can see, of course, it's a freer society, but um, Australia is having uh, big problems um, with a zero COVID policy. So it seems to me that it will have an economic impact. Margaret, I'm wondering, Canada and China in terms of business, you know, since they're, you know, the two Michaels and all the other stuff that's been going on, there has been a growing sentiment about decoupling from, from China, like business-wise. Does that make sense or is that just cutting off your nose in spite of your face? Well, I think, in fact, it's China that's decoupling from the West. Yeah. They've been uh, building a much thicker firewall, you know, the Great Firewall of China, uh, so that their own citizens can't get access to outside media. And uh, they've been um, uh, putting on much tighter uh, rules and regulations for foreign companies in China. I've done a lot of work on Canadian technology company joint ventures and the problems they've run into in China, which have been really significant. So, uh, you know, we will continue to trade with China. Um, they want our resources. But uh, I think, you know, Canadians are now starting to look broader in that region uh, to having an Indo-Pacific strategy. 
And that's something that I think our government is likely to announce in the coming months. And I, I'm really looking forward to that. And that'll allow some of our com companies to diversify their risk uh, away from China when they've been having, having difficulty there. Um, and I, I'd also like to say that um, I think our athletes uh, will be looking for ways of speaking out about some of the atrocities we've been discussing. We know that among themselves, there have been a lot of discussions and what they can and can't do under Rule 50, it's called, of the IOC Charter. Uh, they are allowed to speak uh, freely in media interviews, and I I'm hoping that many will speak out about what's going on in Xinjiang. And I hope that they will not attend the opening and, and closing ceremonies to send a message to um, Beijing that um, they too um, object to the way that China is treating its own citizens. Does the Canadian Olympic Committee um, permit the, the, the athletes not to attend these ceremonies? Well, it's hard to say. Bruce would know better than I um, what's going on behind the scenes. I think COC wants just a nice, quiet uh, games with no problems. Is that right, Bruce? <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, I think the question of participation in the opening ceremonies is complicated by uh, both these political concerns and the logistics of uh, location, because the winter games are spatially separated, uh, the timing of, uh, of your next event and so on. Um, usually because it's such an important moment in an athlete's rights, uh, athletes fight for the right to march in the opening ceremonies and stay for the closing ceremonies. But these are very different circumstances uh, because of the human rights concerns, because of COVID, so uh, it's an open question uh, for me. I do know that Canadian athletes have been educating themselves on this issue. They've been, uh, you know, uh, screening presentations from uh, some of the uh, the NGOs that are campaigning, uh, you know, in support of the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and so on. Um, and Rule 50 uh, is considerably more uh, liberal, more relaxed than it was in Beijing. So it's an open, it's an open question. People are terrified that Western athletes will speak up and will be arrested by the Chinese police. And we're we're all pushing the IOC uh, to insist that these are the world's games, not China's games, for which there is some precedent, and that the IOC will guarantee the safety of every Olympic participant in Beijing. Well, folks, uh, another great discussion. Uh, we, we've run out of time, but I, I want to thank our guests today on Unpublished TV. Elliot Tepper, Professor of Political Science at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Alan Freeman is with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Margaret McGag Johnson is a senior fellow with the Graduate School for Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Bruce Kidd, former Canadian Olympian and a professor of sport and public policy at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Jimmy Lamo is a Tibetan Canadian activist and Zumratai Arkin is with the World Uyghur Congress. And I wanna thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe, I'm Ed Hand.